Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. There was a focus on what was happening operationally in places like Iraq and Afghanistan because we were spending literally billions of dollars a year and our energy spend there. But I began to focus on what we were doing here domestically. That led to me launching an office called the Energy Initiatives Task Force. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you for investing your most precious resource here with me today. That, of course, is your time. Today's entrepreneur, John Powers, is a true warrior and a veritable solar warrior at that. When John returned from serving the U.S. Army in Iraq, he had a vision for how important clean energy is for our nation's independence, and he charted a path to help the armed forces transition away from fossil fuels. Little did he know this would lead him to the White House as the first ever chief sustainability officer under the Obama administration. Now his fingerprint is on many of the important initiatives underway in the federal arena for clean energy, and he's turned his eye to the private sector with an eye towards disrupting the finance and fintech side of clean energy. I'm also honored to have John on because he's a fellow podcaster. If you haven't yet heard the Experts Only podcast, you really should add it to your queue. We discuss the genesis of the podcast, the startup woes and wins at Clean Capital, his current venture, and so much more on today's episode. You'll find another 180 plus episodes of inspiring and influential leader stories over at mysuncast.com. Hey, while you're there, why don't you check out the Suncast tribe and subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode or announcement that comes out. But for now, let's get ready for another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, I've been waiting for this interview for quite some time. It's rare, and in fact, I think it's only been with Jigger and with Steven, so two energy gang folks, that I've had the chance to interview a fellow clean energy podcaster. I almost feel like he needs an introduction, but before I give an adequate introduction, Mr. John Powers, founder and CEO of Clean Capital, welcome to Suncast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Love the stuff you're doing. Yeah, likewise. And, uh, you know, when, when Experts Only, your uh, illustrious podcast, came out, uh, I immediately became a listener and I'm floored by how prolific, given that you're <laughs> running a company. You know, I know that Lauren Glickman, our friend over at Renewcom, yeah. has been really helpful in helping you guys get that going. You know, you've done a lot in your career and I want to talk uh, about the arc of your career but for those who aren't familiar with, with John, John uh, has led public sector businesses, including uh, Clean Capital, for, is it, it's better part of a decade now, right, in, in yeah. the energy space. Before that, notably at Bloom, uh, which most will recognize, Bloom Energy, his passion for clean energy comes from time serving in the U.S. Army in Iraq. We're definitely going to dig in to that. And if you're unfamiliar with Clean Capital, one of the leading platforms for financing clean energy in the United States at the moment. They're on a tear. John, 
You guys are remarkable. I'm really impressed at the work you're doing. Thank you so much. It's been, uh, you know, we've, we've had an amazing team and Clean Capital has really hit its stride. And I love coming to work every day, getting to do stuff that I'm passionate about. And at the same time, getting to do things like I really have fun with, like the podcast. Before we talk a little bit about how you got into clean energy, I'm yeah. going to fast forward many years and ask where and how, why did the idea of a podcast occur to you? Like this seems manic for a CEO of a company. Yeah, no, you know what? It, it's a combination of a couple of things. My co-founder, Tom Byrne, and I met through his brother-in-law who I'd served in Iraq with. And he was, uh, he had a podcast on a culture within companies. His college roommate had an entrepreneur as a host of a show called Entrepreneur on Fire. Did you say his college roommate was John Dumas? Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm really good friends with John. That's crazy. Yeah. I did not know that connection. John like, was the best man at Ryan's wedding. What? Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. That no, so John, uh, none other than. So there's, yeah, th- no, yeah, no wonder. Anyone who's in any way tangentially connected to JLD <laughs> has started a podcast. Well, that was it. So like basically the idea has always been like percolating. And then probably two years ago, we were down at an event now called EarthX. It was Earth Day Texas. And I was hosting a, a panel at the end of the night, right before drinks. And it was terrible audio. But on the on the panel was a guy from Goldman Sachs, who's a good friend of mine, Chris Budden, and uh, a guy from Bank of America. And it, they were giving this incredible discussion on data in the climate space. And nobody could hear it because of the fact the audio sucked. Everyone wanted to get drinks. And I'm like, I need to record this. And then I came home and I called Ryan up. I'm like, how do I do it? And then actually had a conversation with my partners and was it going to be within clean capital or without clean capital? You know, they, they got what I was trying to do and sort of gave me the, the bandwidth to run with it. And in, in the beginning it was, it was, let's just see where this goes. And it, you know, it's, it's, as you know, it can get a life of its own and it's become a really great venue. We also sat back and said, what's going on in the, in the marketplace of podcasts, right? And clean energy. Mm. At the time for us, it was like, how do we focus on leaders in the industry in focusing where we focus in lead capital, which is the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance and help tell their stories a little bit, but also help foreshadow where the market's going. Because what we really want to do is take that and help educate investors and others of what's coming down the pipeline. Yeah. And I know, you know, sort of the inside secret for all of us uh, as podcasters, if you haven't figured this out as a listener, is it also gives us a great platform to talk to the people that we want to talk to. Totally. Right. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest, right? Like I've wanted to, we were all busy. I've wanted to just reach out and have a phone call with you, but a perfect opportunity for us to just chat and hang out was getting in prep for this podcast and doing the podcast. It's a great excuse. Like there's never been a better time to start a podcast. And I applaud you guys because experts only is in a class of uh, what I would consider to be expert podcasts in our space that achieve their mission that they're going after. And, you know, I've, I have a little bit of insight into your download numbers. You guys are doing phenomenal. Uh, I can commend you Thank for you. that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to endorse on, on, on this platform, other podcasts that I think are doing it right. So if you haven't listened to the experts only podcast, you really uh, owe it to yourself to go listen. Uh, in particular, they've got a couple of really cool episodes with the leader from Salesforce and another leader from Google. Uh, I just feel like every time I look at the lineup, I am embarrassed at how awesome some of the, the leaders are that you guys are bringing on. So kudos on that. You know, you had a long history in serving in our armed forces. Thank you for that. Help me understand how you first got exposed to the idea of clean energy and its capacity for uh, sort of creating 
freedom, not just globally, but, you know, helping us economically and how, where you kind of decided to focus your career on that. As you mentioned, I was in, in the military. I did ROTC in college. Uh, this is all pre 9-11. And 9-11 happened when I was in the army. I was stationed in Germany. And for many of us in the military, that was a just a life-altering event for so many reasons. And ended up getting deployed to Iraq in the early part of the war, 2003, 2004. Spent 15 months in Baghdad and then a, a town called Najaf in the south. And when we were on the ground there, I should caveat all this. With, I was an elementary education major. Wow. Right? So the idea of energy and policy and all these things were not, couldn't be farther from my educational background. We lived on a compound in Baghdad in Uday Hussein's palace. And every night at around six o'clock, a group of Iraqis that worked in the base doing a bunch of odd jobs would leave. We also knew they left with intelligence, right? And they, they would, you know, and not always fall to their own, but maybe their neighbors or others would garner information. And then wherever our fuel trucks were, became a point of uh, a mortar target with, you know, by seven o'clock. We just knew it. So literally the, as the employees left, we'd move our fuel trucks. And for me, that was the first time I ever even got the idea of energy security. And then I really began to focus more on that. And when I came back from Iraq, I first worked in the broader national security space. I started a nonprofit to work with kids back in Iraq and spent a couple of years on that, got involved in politics, and then ran for Congress in 2008 on a platform of turning the Rust Belt into the Green Belt. What you're seeing today, like here in Buffalo, New York, we have the Tesla plant and a lot's happening in that space. But again, I didn't have a deep academic background in it. I just loved the issue. And it was sort of like many vets, it was sort of core to what my experiences had been in, in combat. When I lost, which was the best thing that ever happened to me, I ended up in Washington, D.C. again and went back to focus on energy academically at Johns Hopkins. I started at a think tank called the Truman National Security Project, a program focused on climate change and national security. And then through a whole series of events, which is a much longer could be a whole nother episode. I ended up working at the Pentagon uh, as the first special advisor on energy to the Army. So helping oversee the Army's energy platform. Now, what does that mean? The Army has three times the square footage of Walmart, right? But at the time, had very little in terms of a true energy policy. So whether it be energy efficiency, renewables, electric vehicles, you name it, it just wasn't in the forefront of some of the leadership side of things. There was a focus on what was happening operationally in places like Iraq and Afghanistan because we were spending literally billions of dollars a year on our energy spend there. But I began to focus on what we were doing here domestically. That led to me launching an office called the Energy Initiatives Task Force. Yeah. Hey, before we actually, before running the Energy Initiative Task Force, you were the first energy advisor to the Army. What year was that? 2010, probably late 2009, early 2010. So the administration came in, right? And there'd been different political appointees landing in different places. I was really interested in doing the army job. And the one job that I had wanted was a non-political job. Uh, and, was, and so I, you know, we basically worked on creating what was became the special advisor on energy. And then that job went to the Air Force and the Navy as well. Maybe it's not obvious. And for those outside the Beltway, it would seem like, an, I feel like a normal question inside the Beltway, maybe not. But what qualified you as the energy advisor to the Army? Yeah. Well, that's a whole different question. <laughs> um, so I was working on the climate issues, climate and security issues. I ended up testifying to the Senate based on a series of things I'd written on Huffington Post. And a Senate staffer 
read one of them and invited me to testify. And my wife to this day will joke that I had only been really working on these issues for a handful of months, but because it read that, that piece, they invited me to testify. So I said yes. And I basically spent the next two weeks writing a thesis on what I was going to present. But when I presented, I had, I was sitting next to a recently retired senator named John Warner, who's the Secretary of the Navy, a really strong Republican on climate change and national security, a three-star admiral named Denny McGinn, who went on to lead ACOR and became the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for energy, uh, and a lawyer from the oil companies. And as we were testifying, Warner's first time back to the Senate, and he's giving a geopolitical position, and people, you know, in mind, you guys should set the table here. This is during the Waxman-Markey climate bill. Oh, wow. Okay. So then Denny McGinn gave a wonderful sort of three-star admiral's perspective, and I gave sort of a ground troops perspective on what was going to happen in destabilizing states. And then the, the, the oil company lawyer started to talk, and basically started to defend the position that we didn't need to act on climate until uh, India and China did. And I interrupted his testimony by slapping the table and said to him, look, when's the last time India or China sent their troops anywhere? I'm like, it's our friends are going to go fight this fight. And one, I should not have broken the rules, I realized, <laughs> after the, the slap the table and yell at the other witness. But Warner took me under his wing and said, look, we need more of that in this climate fight. And he and I uh, and McGinn hatched something called Operation Free, which recruited, ended up recruiting 5,000 Iraq Afghanistan vets to get involved in climate change and national security advocacy. That organization now has, has a life of its own, but to your earlier question, it went right to the root of a lot of these vets' experiences to say, look, we have to do things better. Many of them, like myself, didn't know what better was. So you came home and you understood, began to understand what clean energy was, how climate impacted things. And then Warner asked me to help on a paper he was writing about what the Defense Department should do on clean energy, ended up sort of co-authoring it. And then that led to my invitation to the Army. It's easy for someone to look at the work you're doing now and see the titles, the accolades, Washington Life's Top 25 Tech Leaders, Renewable Energy's inaugural 40 under 40 list, and think, golly, I could never do what this guy's doing. But the reality is that hundreds, if not thousands of vets around the world are doing what you're doing. They might not necessarily have reached the the level of success that you perhaps even you would say like luckily sort of stumbled into. Oh, luckily, yeah. You know, and I, I go back to what your wife says, like, man, you but here's the thing. You took the initiative of your time to put your thoughts into writing and publish it on a free platform called HuffPo. Right? right. And as I've kind of listened to your story a couple of times and on a number of podcasts, I trace back to like that moment where you made the decision to publish that changed the direction of the next decade of your life. 100%. 100%. I mean, I can look at a couple of key decision points in my life that completely changed where I went. And it was not because of my depth of knowledge on something like energy, right? It, yeah. was, it was just some of it was luck. Some of it was, there was another point when you know, I got out, out of the army I moved back to Buffalo and was going to start at the University of Buffalo to get a master's in school administration. But there was a documentary made about the movie I served in Iraq with, the unit I served in Iraq with, that premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. I went up and saw the film, was asked to speak in a panel afterwards, and the film company came up to me and said, hey, we really like the way you talked about things. We'd like you to go on tour with this film. And uh, I'm like, sure, call me. Never thinking they'd call. Uh, flash forward four months, and I'm a week out from starting school. And the film company calls and said, hey, 
We are leaving next week. We're going on a 23 city tour for the next six weeks. Uh, we'll pay you to go. I called University of Buffalo. You know, I had this great decision of grad school or a movie tour. Which one to take? Took the movie tour. What does something like that pay? Oh, nothing. I mean, <laughs> they just had to cover the money that I wasn't making substitute teaching. Context, you were how old at the time? Oh, uh, I just got back from Iraq. So I was probably 28, 27 even. So it was an adventure. It wasn't for the money. It was a, it was a way to, I, tra- I we did six, 23 cities in six weeks. I met soldiers who had very similar experiences that I did. We were going to the Miami Film Festival on South Beach. There's two game-changing moments in there that got me to move. One was I ended up in Washington for the first time since I was probably eight. And I spoke with Senator John Kerry, and this is after his presidential run, and a couple other senators about my experiences in Iraq and realized that there was a value to having that experience and the voice that I could bring to Washington. Because, you know, for all the staffers and nothing against staffers in Washington, like many didn't have that experience, but were helping to wage the war and didn't know what they were doing. And then I ended up in Phoenix, Arizona. At this point, we'd done, if not 100, close to 100 interviews on CNN, on Fox, and you name it. It's the first documentary out about the war. And we interviewed at the local... Phoenix, Arizona, Today Show. We followed Cedric the Entertainer. No way. Show, yeah, I'll never forget this. A guy behind camera after the after the filming was over said, "Hey, I'd love to show you our Wall of Honor." And at this point, I was re- sort of jaded from those experiences, and I'm not sure. And he walked me into a warehouse. He'd taken eight and a half by eleven pictures of all the men and women who died in Iraq and lined them up around this warehouse by the order that they'd, they'd been killed. And the filmmaker and I, who was a good friend of mine, could sit there and point to people that we knew. And for me, it was like this moment of, okay, I've got to do something sort of bigger with my life. I didn't know what it was. And that led me down a path that I ended up going back to Iraq and starting working. I could be a school principal here in Buffalo, New York, very easily if I had just taken a different path. And uh, again, it wasn't to do with my education. It wasn't to do with, it was just the opportunity was there. And I jumped at it. So you got this opportunity with uh, Senator Warner and McGinn. They dropped you into this, um, you know, into this role, serving the army again, but as a civilian, as an energy advisor. And you decided we don't have a domestic approach to this. Uh, So the Energy Initiative Task Force began. So that was, yeah, that was the secondary piece. But yeah, so it actually, we didn't have any policy structure. And... I got asked to develop the policy structure. So I spent a few months working the building, the Pentagon. And then there was an upcoming conference and we were establishing a speech for the Secretary of the Army to give. And in that speech, I designed what became the Army's sort of broader energy policy, focusing on the soldiers, the vehicles, and the the, the bases, right? And then I, I started to run down the train afterwards the bases, realizing that there was a chance to do something larger on renewables there. The Energy Initiative Task Force wasn't my idea per se, but I worked with a guy that really hatched it. And then I went in and helped him launch the office. The goal of that office was to get a gigawatt worth of renewables on army bases. And they're on track and they've been doing really good stuff. So, Was it relatively soon thereafter that you started formulating this idea around financing? Or how did, how did you stumble across the notion that there weren't enough people working on financing solar? Yeah. So we were doing these long-term power purchase agreements out of the army. And I didn't really at the time have any sense of how they were financed. Uh, a guy named Richard Coffin, who is now, uh, was in New York re- up until recently, the Greens are New York, had been a department of energy, 
he'd come over to the Pentagon and sit down with myself, but a bunch of other colleagues and talk to us about securitizing our power purchase agreements. And no one had a clue what he was talking about. And it was not because that they weren't smart people. They just didn't understand finance. So I took it upon myself to try to get smarter on it. And then literally to this day, still have corporate finance for dummies uh, on my bookshelf. And I began to better understand what Richard was talking about. Flash forward to when I was at the White House, I saw the same thing happen when Richard would come over and talk to other policymakers about finance issues, even at places like the National Economic Council, right? Or the Domestic Policy Council, which for the folks that don't understand the White House are the sort of brain trusts that bring the policy forward. We went right over their heads. So he and I launched a clean energy finance working group to start to get people smarter on it. And that's actually how I got smarter on it. And when I left the White House, I was going to do one of two things. I was going to do business development, which I didn't really know what that was, but I'd never actually cut my teeth into the heart of a PPA before and wanted to do that, or energy finance. And I ended up at Bloom leading the public sector business development and was doing things like microgrids and PPAs. But six months into being at Bloom, my now partner, Tom, and I met for the first time through his brother-in-law, who I mentioned earlier, Ryan, grabbed a beer and Tom had hatched this idea, what is today clean capital, but really wasn't sure how to take it and turn it into something. And all I had been doing throughout my career is sort of creating these different mechanisms. So we, when we launched and partnered together, it was a perfect fit. So you know, I didn't have nearly the finance and deal experience he had. He had been the public or the general counsel at a private equity firm, and done a tremendous amount of solar transactions. But I had the network to sort of start to build out what we were building. And we brought our third co-founder in, uh, Mark Garrett, who's our chief technology officer. From the trifecta of those different, we have different skill sets and do things in different ways, but they actually really work well together and has a lot of clean capital to thrive. I don't want to gloss over something that we didn't mention uh, because we sort of jumped straight to clean capital. You, you held a post that is not an insignificant post in your tenure, uh, you know, sort of your growth in your 30s that had a lot of weight, I would say nationally for sure. And you got to report to one of, I think, the greatest chiefs we've had. So can we talk about kind of how that came about? When I was at the Energy Initiatives Task Force, it was coming up to the 2012 election. And a mentor of mine in government said to me, look, no one knows what happens in the election. If you think you do, but just look at 2016, right? If you think you know what's going to happen, uh, you're wrong. So you need to really think through what your plan is going to be post-election. And for me, it was one of two things. I was either wanted to move up in government or make a move into the private sector. And literally probably a week after that conversation, I got a call from the office I ended up working at. Uh, my predecessor was leaving and she and I were, had worked together on a couple of projects and said, are you interested in this job? And the job at the time was called the Federal Environmental Executive. It became the chief sustainability officer for the federal government in the White House. It was an incredible, incredible role for two reasons. One, you have an amazing platform, you do really cool stuff and a supportive president. But two, that job is unlike a lot of jobs in the White House where folks are working on 10,000 foot policy issues like you know, greenhouse gas reductions and the Paris negotiations or you know, national economic issues. I was very focused on operations across the federal spectrum. So when people in the White House spent a lot of time focusing on how to get to the West Wing and you know, moving stuff in front of the president, I actually had the ability to turn outwards and 
literally travel. So I was in Silicon Valley. I was in Austin. I was in these clean energy hubs, meeting both with the federal leaders that are doing really cool stuff within their facilities. But then like people at Kleiner Perkins and Goldman Sachs and other really interesting institutions that wanted to bring innovation into the federal space and met for me, a great core of future mentors that I ended up moving, you know, I ended up at Bloom because of the guys at Kleiner and, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity and it was, the job was cool as hell, really. I mean, when it came down to it, we were doing cool stuff. We did billions of dollars in clean energy transactions. You worked with passionate people and you got to do fun stuff at the White House. We're now in clean capital. The point of clean capital is to accelerate uh, what's possible with securitization of finance to make it easier and more accessible. Uh, did I catch that right? We started Clean Capital because we wanted to bring more, we recognize there was capital constraints in the market, right? And how do we take that to the next level? And whether it be institutional capital, individual investors, you name it. What we saw was that the deals were being done in very traditional project finance ways, right? And still do too, in many cases to this day. But we said there was technology disrupting other verticals, like real estate, student loans. How can we learn from that technology and bring it into clean energy? When we started Clean Capital, we actually had a crowdfunding component to what we were trying to do. We don't so much anymore, but the fit concept of fintech at the heart of what we do is still there. And we got great advice early on from one of those mentors I'd mentioned who was in Silicon Valley and said, look, don't go and try to build the perfect widget. He said, start to do deals and build what you need to execute. So, you know, wasn't it here we are in year four and our platform is incredible and flying. And, you know, we get comments from our partners that are working on it. Like we make their life significantly better and faster and more efficient because of it. But, you know, we built that over time to be able to do deals, right? We didn't try to build a solution and then launch a company. We also came around at a time when Yilco's were functioning, right? Before they crashed. And that actually was unique because it forced us to say, we can't compete against the terraforms of the world for utility scale solar, right? That's a pretty efficient market. Where was the inefficient market? And I, we think the most growing opportunity and that was in distributed generation, right? And so we began to focus there because a lot of those mid-tier developers were not hearing from the Yokos and they were hungry for capital. We saw that as a sort of a beachhead space to, to enter into. You know, the solar industry is increasingly competitive. How are you differentiating yourself and your company to close more sales? Our friends over at Aurora Solar, you know, the NREL validated solar sales and design tool that I've been mentioning lately. Well, they've conducted over a year of research into understanding precisely what makes a solar sales proposal succeed. And they've agreed to share their insights with Suncast listeners in a free ebook. It's called The Solar Sales Playbook for Proposals That Close. You can go to mysuncast.com forward slash Aurora to download this playbook for free. And if we've done our job right, you should also see the link in the description for this episode in your podcast player. Check it out. And thanks to Aurora for this amazing free resource. Hey, if you're going to Salt Lake City, please do come by and say hi at the Podcast Lounge. It's a first ever experiment with the SPI team in on-site content curation. And we've got a lot of great conversations lined up. You can learn more at 
podcastlounge.live. And you can follow along as we post the program and have live video feed of what's happening at the lounge. It's also a great branding opportunity, and we still have a few sponsor opportunities available. You can head over to podcastlounge.live, fill out the form, and we'll follow up if you'd like to get a little more brand exposure at SPI. For now, back to the show. You and your founder had begun this journey and you said you'd later, uh, or you decided to bring in Mark as your CTO. Would you unpack that decision for me? I think that one of the cool benefits of this platform is I get to ask entrepreneurs questions about how they develop their company. One of the things that goes unsaid all too often is how and why you decide on who to bring on when. The original idea was Tom and I, uh, or Tom's idea, honestly, but when the company really began to, to was created, it was Tom and I started going with it. I brought in a third founder that is actually no longer with us, a guy named Kevin Johnson, a guy I'd served in the army with. Kevin was a deal guy, still a great guy. He left for a series of reasons about 18 months ago. But then we went to raise money and we'd sort of proven our concept out. And we had a couple investors tell us, energy guy, deal guy, finance guy, you're trying to build a tech company. Where is your technology guy? I took that to heart and started to sort of use my network to find someone who could be a chief technology officer. We met Mark. Mark's based in Washington, had just sold his company, came highly recommended from uh, someone I had trusted. You know, he got what we were doing. He loved what we were doing and came out as our fourth co-founder before we got our, closed our seed round. And then from there, we have been really strategic in how we bring people on almost organically because we didn't want to grow too hard, too fast, right? In terms of personnel and operation, because we wanted to take every dollar we had and make the most of it. And that's paid off now. I mean, we're, we're growing, we're hiring, but over the first three years, our business model ebbed and flowed until we hit a point where it's, you know, really flying now. Is there anything as you look back at how you hired that you would restructure? Maybe you hired someone too early. uh, You didn't hire someone early enough. I'm not sure there'd be much restructuring. There's been some folks that came on and, and have gone. There's been things we've struggled with occasionally having too many coaches and not enough players and trying to find that balance of the right hire is hard because you want someone with a ton of experience, but then you'd question, can you pay for that all that experience versus you want a couple players in the field that can just move the ball around. So, you know, it's, I'm not sure there's anything I would change differently, but we are pretty reflective on our hiring partially because of the fact that we were all close to 40. We all had two kids. We wanted everyone to have healthcare. If I could open my trunk and live out of the back of my trunk and I was 20 years old, we might've had a different strategy to grow the company, but because we had experience and we wanted to make sure we could pay people. <laughs> so um, it was a really uh, you know organic way to grow and, there's probably some things we probably could have changed differently, but things are really clicking now. So it's hard to really question it. Are there any particular tools from your time in the military or your time in Washington, maybe mental models or management tools that you learned, uh, maybe even it's stuff you bring from MBA uh, or from, yeah. from grad school that really you reflect on now and you're like, wow, that actually, I use that a lot as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I'd say there's two, two things. One, uh, my experience in the military and how to sort of look out and plan forward and set and manage priorities for a team. I think that's something that probably is my strongest addition to the clean cap. Cause you know, when you get into deals, the deals literally like, what do I got to get done today to get the deal done tomorrow? Right. And it's hard for folks to really step back and look out for 
for six months, for a year and, and setting, setting priorities. We, we've been working really hard at that at Clean Capital over time and have struggled, but sometimes do, do it well. That's something I think is a good experience for, that I've brought to the table. The other one was probably my experience at the Pentagon. The Pentagon, for the folks that don't know, is legitimately the biggest bureaucracy in the world. And for multiple reasons, that could be a whole different podcast, but learning to move things like clean energy policy within a building of military leaders that are fighting two wars, you had to learn to play what I call nine-dimensional chess and move multiple pieces on the chessboard at the right time in different ways to get to your end goal. And that really, I think, helped me think strategically, uh, think about how to have the importance of relationships, right? Because it's really hard to move around people in the military. In many cases, you got to move through them, but you, then you have to get them bought into what you're doing. So those challenges, I think, have paid off and helped me for what I do for the team today. I'm curious from your perspective, given the hiring that you've done and the rock stars that you've brought on, when was that moment? Put me in the moment in time where you, maybe you and Tom looked and you're like, holy smokes, like this person just added an order of magnitude of skill to our team and can you put your finger on what was it that that person or that maybe one or two people, the skill sets that really started to crank the engine on your behalf instead of you having to do it? It's hard to point to, I think, a single individual. There are probably some that, I, you know, we should, we should highlight. But, you know, I think it's a, a compilation of things where, you know, we saw weaknesses and we'd fill a position. And then, then what we looked for I think probably more importantly than the position is we look for good athletes that can come in and do a variety of stuff. We're getting more defined on the roles and responsibilities, but early on, you know, it's impossible to do it because things change so much. So I think we've have, we found some good athletes and they were able to cross into all different parts of the company. When, for instance, we brought a guy on Derek Daly last year, just about a year ago, Derek had worked out in Denver for a firm. And then he and his wife took a year off and circled the globe. And he actually applied for a different job at our company. And I saw his resume and said, Hey, you know, Derek would be great addition, maybe not for this role, but how do we make this work? And, you know, he's become a core part of our, our management. He looks at things in a really unique way. And when, you know, he was in the middle of a deal and thought about how to manage and better utilize the platform to get that deal done, that hit on multiple levels, multiple verticals of what we're doing. Like that was one of those moments, like, okay, like people get what we're trying to achieve. Now you said you look for athletes. Are you actually looking on a resume for people who have athletic skill and, and experience? <laughs> no, I mean, that's a good, no, I think, I think athletes as I didn't actually, my boss, uh, when I was at Bloom, KRS reader, I said, you, you know, sometimes you get people on the bus and you don't put them in the right seat in the beginning. Right figure out what seat they go in. They, I think we want people that can sort of work across different verticals. Now, as you grow, you do need to find some very specific expertise, right? Right. Sit in that expertise. But early on, you want folks that can, you know, manage and, uh, and work through a variety of different, different roles. And I think we, we, we had that. Is there something that you see as people grow that comes up as a continuous failure where you as a management team now think, have to think at proactively, okay, we know this is going to come we're going to manage against this. Going back to setting the priorities of the company. When we were small, we could set a handful of priorities and we worked to them, right? As we've now grown, you know, we noticed in Q4 and Q1 of this last year, 
that those priorities would slide. You know, we want to get this done this quarter, they'd slide the next quarter, and then they were sliding again. And we had to stop as the management team and say, what are we doing wrong here? We're either not setting the right priorities, we're not managing to them. And then I actually, through our board, did a little bit of a, an undertaking to go and find a better way to manage, which for me was a huge challenge because this is how I'd managed over time, period. So, you know, I had a board member who introduced me to a book from John Doerr, who's a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley called Measure What Matters. And it's about uh, objectives and key results. Once I, re- I started reading that book, a light bulb went off in my head because it took what I was doing to the next level. Now, we actually have taken this concept and now we're implementing it across our company. You know, Q3 of, or Q4 and Q1 next year, we don't want to step back and be like, man, why are our priorities sliding again? Because now we have a much better way to manage to them and to manage our people towards them. There are so many soul-searching moments when you start a company. If someone told me once, a good friend of mine, that he feels like every day he wakes up and he, some, his college roommate turns to him and said, do you know we got an exam today and you didn't study for it? Oh. <laughs> like every day. It's like, <laughs> That's it's a terrible, group. it's a gut-wrenching feeling. And you're like, oh man, this is like, this is like nothing I've ever done before. But it's awesome. I mean, the, the, you make strides, you improve what you're doing. Uh, we are, you know, we, we've gotten through sort of the early stage fears of will we make it to, and the question now is like, you know, how do we manage and scale? What's the moment where you feel like your team walked through fire, really like forged clean capital as it is today? One came around just getting our series A closed when we, you know, we didn't take any money from venture capital. We only take individual investors. And there was a moment when we had our last paycheck go out. We only had a handful of employees at the time, but we want to be able to pay them. And the three founders sort of hit step back months earlier and really cut back how much we're making just to stretch this out. You know, that was a really hard gut-wrenching spring to say, okay, you know, this may not work. And, you know, we, we were out hard selling what we're doing. People started to get it. We had a closing dinner with some of the investors after that. And they were, they didn't come from the clean energy space. They came from the fintech space. I mean, at that point, you're just sort of relieved that you can actually, okay, money's in the bank. We're going to do this. The guy who's on our board now, uh, who'd been at, uh, at a company called Lending Club, we were talking through the platform. He said, you know what? I just want to give you some advice. You're spending all this time chasing uh, what are known as retail investors on the crowdfunding side. And what you should really be doing is chasing projects and making these projects investable because there's enough capital and you should have a platform built on that. And literally, the light bulb went off on the eight-hour drive my CTO and I had back to, our, back to Washington. We rewrote the platform strategy and now have built the platform out to support that side of what we were trying to achieve. That was one moment. I think the other one is, you know, when we did a, you know, last year we closed a 46 megawatt, $120 million acquisition, our largest to date. Uh, this summer we closed a 162 million, 74 megawatt deal. It's surreal, but those deals drag on and they're hard, really in the mucky. At the same time, we knocked out a $15 million three asset deal in five weeks, right? Our platform hit on all those levels. And you know that was a really exciting moment when a company like BlackRock makes an investment in one of our portfolios, sees what we're doing, loves the technology so much, they took a personal investment in us as a company. You know, we were talking a bit at the beginning of the episode about putting podcasts together, right? And yeah. 
And it is a, it's a really hard process to make this consistent, right? And evident of that. And you got to have, like, I can tell you early in my podcasting career, I would have like that one interview that I was, if, if it didn't happen, like I didn't have content for the week. And uh, thank God I'm not there yet because I remember very well the day that you guys closed the deal was the day we were supposed to record this, you know, it was yeah. like, yeah, I, we got on the phone and I looked at your face and you were almost ashen. And I said, uh, John, are you ready for this? And you were like, man, if we could record this any other day, yeah. um, I'm kind of going through a lot today. <laughs> I, I got I to wire $162 million in the next 45 minutes. Exactly. Those are <laughs> your exact words. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, that's you know, right. I mean, but what a joy to be able to see the progress that you guys are going through. As a CEO, what do you consider now in a, in a company that has evolved to where you are now? What's your most critical role in the company? Yeah. So to be clear, I'm actually the president. My partner, Tom's the CEO. Uh, thank you for correcting uh, me there. No, it's okay. And so... Well, tell me about Tom then. <laughs> yeah. Although it, it's funny you ask that because it's something that we've had, you know, between Tom, Mark and I, you know, consistent dialogue over these four years on roles and responsibilities because they mm-hmm. have shifted, right? And for instance, you know, as we got bigger, we were no longer just a deal company. We have to manage assets. So we went from in April of last year... We had uh, eight megawatts under management. This year, we have almost 200. So in a year. So scaling the ability to actively manage those assets continues to be a challenge, but it was something that we had to really wrestle with all year while still trying to do the, the fee side of the origination and deal flow. So from a company perspective, you know, being able to sort of plug and play in these different pieces because you know, we don't have the, the manpower to shift an apartment over here, right? Those challenges are, are immense. I think my strength continues to be, and sometimes I don't play to my strengths. Sometimes I was doing things I didn't feel comfortable with uh, and was way over my skis, but you just had to do them. This goes back to feeling like you're taking an exam the next day, right? And not, you didn't study for it. But then the stuff I feel really strong at when I feel like I'm doing the most for the company is when I'm able to sort of grab the management leadership stuff and push us forward outside of just the day-to-day does that differentiate the the CEO and president role in your mind? The president's the operator and the CEO is the visionary or like, how, how would you? That's a good question. I don't, I don't think it's that. I think that it's more of a company thing, right? And in how. Meaning each company defines it differently? Yeah, I would think so. And it, for me, it, it, for a lot of us has to do with the way the three founders work together. And our, now we have a broader management team. I'll be clear. We have a chief investment officer and a chief commercial officer. So how do we all work together? I think that's probably more important than the defined role, right? So. You know, Tom is a phenomenal finance and deal guy. You know, it's hard for him to extract himself out of those things. But when we brought our chief commercial officer in, you know, she was able to relieve him of some of those, those roles so he could do those things like forward-looking strategy on, you know, long-term investment vehicles, right? Things that, that are important for us as a company beyond the day-to-day. You mentioned that predominantly your Series A, I think it was Series A if I caught you right, uh, was funded through FinTech, not through um, CleanTech uh, investors. Yeah, mostly right. What makes CleanTech or Clean Capital different enough to attract those FinTech investors? Yeah, it's a new asset class. So they see how technology can disrupt finance and asset classes, right? So you're seeing it with cool companies like Fundrise in the real estate space, or you probably see SoFi.com all over the place. SoFi started off sort of peer-to-peer lending and become this really fascinating platform doing all types of different, different assets of mortgages and personal loans. They got how we could disrupt project finance and provide new capital in the market. The interesting thing was 
we had to educate them on clean energy. Like they didn't had very, many of them had very little experience for with solar. Didn't understand what a PPA was. Once you started to walk them through that and understood the long-term cash flows of these deals and the structures and how they work and the technology risk, that was something they began to understand. The flip side, when we went to clean energy investors and we started there on our, our, our series A, they couldn't wrap their head around fintech disruption. Many have pushed us heavily towards crowdfunding. We did a crowdfunded deal and knew how hard it was. We were under the belief and correctly that there was enough capital out to move the markets. We needed to provide the deal flow and, and efficient deals to do it. I'm wondering if you could in some way encapsulate what it is about your tech that's different, like how you stand out in the market. So there's platforms out there that are, you could pay a service fee to get access to, to help you do diligence of projects, right? And some of those are really interesting and they're, they're highly engineered and they're very sophisticated. We said, what's going to make us do deals better? And a good example, I'm going to go back to this deal we did, we announced in November with BlackRock. It was 46 megawatts, 60 different assets. I think it's in 10 different states. But regardless, the BlackRock team saw that deal three months before we did and passed because that was a big size check. But to be able to underwrite and do the due diligence on that many assets was, was not something they wanted to spend their time doing. We took that deal, ran it through our platform which helps highlight where are the opportunities for things like adding more value into the deal or, you know, even like, you know, helping them read PPAs faster, just things that are really intricate due diligence tasks in a really efficient way. And we turned back around and said, here's all the value you're missing by not investing in this deal. They got it. We're not WhatsApp or Instagram. We don't have hundreds of users on our platform. We have a very select few and it's our team, our investors, and then a lot of their partners, right? So you think of the law firms, the engineers, instead of us having like a Dropbox or an Interlinks program, we send stuff through, we drive people to our platform. They log in, they get all the stuff they have. And in the future, all of our stuff is there as these deals continue to grow. So, you know, as we become 300 megawatts and a gigawatt worth of CNI solar, right? It's all organized in the same exact structure. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, but I want to go back to the fact that you worked for Obama. Uh, You were chief sustainability officer. I'm astounded at the fortuitous, sort of circuitous, but fortuitous route that you took in your career. Uh, It's amazing. And it's a great example of persistence, meeting luck and timing and being thoughtful about putting yourself out there and, and networking the right way. Once you got to the White House, which for many is not just a stepping stone, but it is kind of arriving, right? It's a highly visible post. What do you take away from your time in the White House and how did that influence your leadership? You know, I'd come from the Pentagon and we talked about playing nine-dimensional chess and the, the White House is actually a lot more entrepreneurial and you can actually move the ball a lot more efficiently than you can in a place like the Pentagon, but the ramifications of screwing up are also pretty dramatic, right? So you really think about how you move the ball and what you do. I think there's a couple of interesting things in any administration, this current administration under the president, the president has a tight circle of folks around them, right? And most people in those roles in the White House lean into the West Wing. They want to get to know the president. They want the president's chief of staff to know their name. And in many cases, they throw a lot of sharp elbows together, right? 
coming from the Pentagon, I realized it's just as important for me to have a personal relationship with the secretary of the army's secretary than it was with the secretary. Because how did you get on a schedule? She got you on a schedule, right? And so getting those personal relationships and remember those personal relationships are long-term was really important to me. So, you know, I focused on building those, but then I also went going back to everybody we talked about earlier. I said, I'm going to spend less time trying to get to president in the West wing and spend more time leveraging this platform to go to places like Silicon Valley. So when the president gave very famous climate change speech, I just, by pure luck, was in Silicon Valley speaking to the Goldman Sachs Sustainability Summit, got handed the talking points of the president's speech that he'd given that morning to reiterate in front of all these CEOs at the Goldman Sachs Sustainability Summit. Looking around the room, people had no idea that the president had very little clue who I was or what I was doing, but they knew that I was a voice for him there and a conduit to get to be helpful in doing what they were doing. But then they also got to know me in a really personal way which is how it led me to those future jobs that I had because they knew what I was able to do, not just the job I had. Flip back, I watched a lot of those folks that were elbow throwers. When the administration ended, they had trouble finding jobs. People remembered who they were at the time and what they did, right? Not the role they had or whatever. They, they remembered that person. And for me, you know, I always think about the people who are on the other side of the table for me and try to think about them empathetically because I feel like whether the conversations today, 10 years from now, like I want to have a long, long-term long and lasting relationship with them. For me, that personifies what we also do at Clean Capital because there are enough people in this business that will do a one-time deal and you never want to do deal with them again, right? We don't want to be those people. Like we have a, we have a, a no assholes rule and we make sure that when it's over, you know, look, there's, a, there's probably some elbows thrown and it gets challenging sometimes, but you know, we don't want to have that culture where, you know, people don't want to come back. How did you come about or structure or realize that it was important to attract or go after mentors? I feel like mentors have been a pretty constant theme into leading me into the places that I've been. I have luckily enough had a really dynamic dad who had a great personality and just the way he approached life was to get to know everyone in the room. Uh, he was an Allstate agent, spent 40 years at Allstate, didn't have uh, you know, a sophisticated finance business career. Matter of fact, it, you know, to this day, I don't think he fully gets what I'm doing. But to him, it was always about getting to know everyone in the room. And I've always sort of, I, you know, I have that sort of personality uh, when I go to a networking event or, or whatever. And then I started meeting people that I thought were super interesting and that I could learn from. When I was in Washington early on, a guy who had been Colin Powell's chief of staff during the build-up to the war, a guy named Larry Wilkerson, was a phenomenal human being. I was in a dinner with him and I stood up and asked a question. Uh, and I recently returned from Iraq. And he focused on me afterwards and came up and talked to me. You know, I asked him to grab lunch. And having no expectation that the guy who was Colin Powell's chief of staff would have any time to have lunch with me. But he took the time. He has forever now been a, a friend and mentor. But I started to really see the value of making those asks. And then actually now, as I've gotten more in my career, I try to provide that as well. Like if there's a value I can give to someone in a conversation or a, a coffee, I try to do that as, as much as I can because people have completely changed my direction in life, conversations, and I feel lucky because of it. John, what habit or consistent practice do you feel like has given you the greatest impact in your life 
or work? There are some habits I wish I did more of, um, but you know, something we focus on at Clean Capital is making sure we have a healthy team and we focus on exercise and I try to do do my best there. It's hard with a, a newborn at home, but I feel like I do my best when I'm taking advantage of that and, and whether it be going out to work out at lunch or taking a run. But the other thing I think I really work hard at doing is balancing work and life. I've got a great family and spending time with them empowers me to do more uh, for what I do every day at Clean Capital. There's so many more questions I'm sure I and the Suncast Tribe want to ask you. Where could people find you if they want to engage directly? You got LinkedIn and Twitter. Maybe you want to share your email. Obviously, I welcome you to share uh, your other feeds, you know, and especially uh, experts only, the podcast. But how, how can people engage with you? If you want to get in touch with me, I think the best way to do it is probably through LinkedIn or through Clean Capital's website, which is cleancapital.com. Also, uh, Twitter, I'm at uh, Powers John at, uh, at Powers John. Um, but you know, reach out to me through LinkedIn or through Clean Capital. I'm happy to connect. Uh, always looking for for new folks to connect with, as well as obviously always looking for solar projects and investors. So if you have any of those, too, send them our way. So let's end today with a bold prediction, John. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, if I had a crystal ball, I think the thing that really excites me right now is I think we are living in a, a climate moment. And if you look back to what happened when Al Gore really began to drive change around this issue with Inconvenient Truth, a lot of that faded. It faded when the Waxman-Markey bill failed to pass the Senate. And there was a moment in the climate fight that just took a pause. Well, now we have the momentum's back. You have investors moving in the space. You have a millennial generation that will not back down on this. And you've got policies being shaped at the state and local level that are trumping what's not happening at the national level. The momentum will continue to move forward. I, my crystal ball is we're going to look back in 10 years and see the last two to three is, is a monumental shift in the way we've approached the market. And we at Clean Capital want to be part of that. And I personally want to be part of that as I look at my kids every day and want to leave them a better world. John Powers is co-founder and president of Clean Capital, an amazing and emerging fintech solution to help securitize clean energy assets. John, it has been an amazing time here having you, a fellow podcaster on Suncast. I hope that our audience has gotten as much mutual benefit out of this as they do from other episodes. And uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, in a couple of weeks at Solar Power International in uh, Salt Lake City. Hey, hey, if you're like many, you heard that music and you're about to skedaddle, but I'm going to ask you, don't head off into the sunset just yet. I'd like to get your feedback and remind you of a few things that are coming up. John and I are both active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And hey, we're also going to be recording our podcasts from the podcast lounge at SPI in Salt Lake City. What were your thoughts on this episode? Why don't you come meet us in Salt Lake City and tell us in person or hit us up on social media. You'll find the Twitter handles and other resources and highlights from these discussions on the blog at mysuncast.com. You can be sure there's a LinkedIn post or two already about this episode. You can go reshare those with your friends. When you do go to My Suncast, just click on the Listen link and you'll see the episodes page where you can find show notes, resource links, 
book recommendations, and all the other goodies covered in each and every episode. Hey, while you're there, why don't you check out as well the Suncast Tribe? Just like my friend Scott Randall and Amy Tuck, our two newest tribe members. I'm so proud to call you all Suncast Tribe members. You too could be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. You click on that member button and you'll get access to uncut interviews and tribe exclusives that just don't have time to make into the Suncast feed. And of course, even if you don't join the tribe, you can join the newsletter where you'll be notified when the new episodes are out and perhaps where I'll be next, like SPI. Did I mention that's in a couple of weeks from now? You can check out more at podcastlounge.live to see what I'll be up to in Salt Lake City. And I hope you'll come by and see John and I in person with our friends Christian and Tor and so many other folks that are going to be contributing to help make it an amazing first event. There are more events on the horizon, including a first ever Suncast local event in San Francisco. So stay tuned to the newsletter. You know, I truly value your investment of time here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.